Hey everybody, I'm so glad you're here as we continue in our study of the book of Romans. Man, this has just been rich. It has been rich theology, a great opportunity to learn what we believe and why we believe and why it's so important and how much freedom is there, man, when your theology and your thinking gets straight. And that's why Paul wrote this book. He, he wrote to a church he'd never visited, uh, among people he'd never actually met, and yet he had a heart for them to know what they believe and why and experience all the good of that. And man, that's what we've been seeing here through this series in the book of Romans. It's been awesome. And let me tell you, it's gonna get better today. As Harrison Huxford comes and unpacks Romans chapter 10, Harrison is our Compassion Christian Statesboro campus pastor. He is a son of Compassion Christian. He's done a great job leading that team. Let's give him a warm Compassion Christian welcome as he comes to break open Romans chapter 10. Cool. Hey, thank you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all of you who are joining us, uh, watching from wherever you are. I love coming together. Um, and again, as Pastor Cam was just saying, man, we're studying um, through Scripture together. We're walking through this uh, book of Romans. Here's what I want you to know. The most important thing that we can do regardless of where we are in our journey, because some of us have been, you know, coming here because someone was dragging us in here or someone at work asked us and hassled us to come over here. Um, and some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, but regardless of where you are in your journey, listen, the most important thing or one of the most important things, regardless of where you are, is to pursue Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus by devoting yourself to the word. I mean, I can't tell you lately how many people I've just been having conversations with that are hungering after the word. They're devoting themselves to the word. And it's not anything that I'm saying. It's not anything that the pastors up here are saying. It's them encountering Jesus and pursuing him by pursuing and devoting themselves to the word. So that's why this is so important for us. That's why we're walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. So again, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 um, today. Uh, but here's, here's where we're going. Uh, before we get into the main passage, what I want to do is do a quick review of where we just come real fast, all right? So, and what we're going to do is we're going to catch up to this point in chapter 10. So last week, you guys heard from uh, Romans 8, which is one of the most phenomenal chapters in the New Testament. You know, it's one of those passages that if you get one chapter with you for the rest of your life, you know, hold on to Romans 8 because it's just one of those gospel-centered, um, focused passages that helps you understand all these promises that God is making. And let me just give you an example because what we're doing is we're entering into a part of the letter that you always need to read in context. So we're now in a part of the letter, Romans 9, 10, 11. Read these things together. We're tackling a little bit of it here and there, but I want you to read the whole thing in context because here's what you understand. And, you know, I was reading a commentary and it said that these chapters we're in right now are crucial role in the letter that's showing us the way that God is fulfilling his ancient promises in and through Jesus. That's where we're at. He's, he's showing us how God continues to be faithful in fulfilling his promises. And then as we jump into chapter 12 in the next week or so, that's when we will see what they mean for us in practice. So this is vitally important, but let's review real fast. So in chapter eight, Paul leads us through the climax of the letter so far, this point of understanding that God has promised all these things. Look at what he promises, all right? Just in case you missed it, just in case you didn't get to hear that message. Here's some of the things that he talks about in Romans eight. He says, for those who put their trust in Jesus, for those who are in, those who are part of the family of God, who are covered in the righteousness of God, right? You, you remember walking through all those chapters. Here, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. 
We don't walk condemned. We don't walk as victims anymore. We walk as free sons and daughters, not condemned by Christ, but adopted into his family through Christ. That's an amazing promise. And then the promise that life is now going to be filled with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. When you showed up today, did you show up knowing that the Spirit of God is dwelling in me? He's given me strength for the day. He's given me strength to walk through suffering. Did you remember that or is that why we're here? To remind each other that for those in Christ, there are promises that you have been given. That in Christ, these things are now available. Promises like you've been adopted into his family. You don't have a spirit of fear, but one of a child of God because you're in his family now. Promises that says there may be suffering for a time, but while you're going through it, he's going to be right there beside you. And he has an amazing way of creating good out of the mess that life throws at us. That's a promise that he says, you're going to go through this, but I'm not leaving you. I'm with you. And then there's this, he ends the chapter with saying, nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. So you got all these, in chapter 8, you got all these promises. But then you start asking the question, how do I know God's going to live up to these promises? How do I know he's not going to fail me? Right? If you're like me, you start asking those questions. That's why chapter 9 follows, because in chapter 8, you hear all these promises. But in chapter 9, you start to see the proof that God is faithful. God is going to do what he started. He's going to complete it. And we're not going to camp out in chapter 9, but let me just give you some things because a friend of mine helped me understand why this is so important. And we got to fly by before we get to the main part here. But here's what he says. You know, chapter 9 is, is there to help us know that we can have faith in God's faithfulness. Because listen to this. Paul addresses questions like, um, how can we know that God is going to keep his promises to us? The ones we just heard in chapter 8, the ones of the new covenant, how can we know he's going to keep those promises if it seems like he didn't hold on to the promises of the old covenant? And Paul goes, whoa, 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 time out. And he starts walking through these Old Testament passages and showing that God has been faithful, even in spite of Israel's rebellion, even in spite of his chosen people's disobedience. He walks through and says, you know these promises that God gave you. Listen, here's proof that he's going to complete it. And he walks through those passages. And then he's forced to address questions like, did the word of God fail? And he's like, no, no, let me show you these things. And then he said, well, is God then unjust? And he tackles all these really difficult questions. And Paul slowly walks through and says, no, you're looking at it the wrong way. Look at it this way. He says, well, who's at fault? And then he shows you, here's how you can have faith in God's faithfulness. He says, if he gave you these promises, here's proof that he'll fulfill them. And that's what leads us up to chapter 10 today. Because chapter 8 in my mind is like it's the promises of God. In chapter 9, it's the proof that God is faithful. And in chapter 10, I think this is where we finally get to the purpose behind it. The purpose of salvation, all right? So let's jump in. We're going to be in uh, Romans 10. Um, but let me give you an example, an illustration of why I think uh, what this passage is going to look like, all right? So <clears throat> for me, um, I uh, just a little bit about myself. I'm married. I have four children, uh, which is very exciting, uh, always. It, too much excitement, actually, uh, in my house all the time. But in, so marrying my wife, Lindsay, was the, the second most amazing decision I ever made in my life. The first one was obviously following Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow after him. And in his grace, he blinded Lindsay 
right up until we got married. And then since then, he's been helping her see, like, here's what you actually got stuck with. You know, and so, again, in his grace, I mean, this is, is a pretty amazing situation for me personally. Because my wife is amazing. But what I learned, and I know many of you, if you're married, you've learned this, you know this. That by, when, you, when you join into the family, when you marry into the family, in many ways, you actually marry into the work of that family. You, you participate in the work of that family. And I'll give you some examples. Um, when I married Lindsay, my, my first job was working for her father in a church. Uh, it seemed like there was a biblical theme there, like I have to serve you for seven years or something like that to prove that this is going to be legit. Okay, cool. Um, but another example is, you know, Lindsay has family up in Virginia, and they live on a farm. And her grandfather had a farm up in Virginia, and it was an amazing place. But everybody knew that when you're there, if you're in the family, you participate in the work of the family. That's what's normal. That's what we do. And so, you know, we're leading up to winter, so this truckload of wood comes in, and everybody knows, grab some gloves, we got to go. Because we got to load up, we got to stock up, we got to get ready, because you got to keep that furnace going all winter long. And you just knew, and, I, and it was one of those things that continues to become clear for me that as I'm part of the family, as I've joined into the family, I am now participating in the work of the family. That's what Romans 10 shows us. It shows us how to join in the family, but very quickly shows us that by joining in the family, you are also called to participate in the work of this family. And we'll get there. So hang with us and walk with us through it. But again, turn to Romans um, 10. I'm going to pick up in verse 5 through 15. That's going to be our section that we're going through. Uh, but what I'm actually going to do is start in the middle of the passage. We're going to work all around it. So if those of you who are like type A people that you're like, I need order to this, I really apologize. Um, I wasn't, uh, I'm sorry. So we're going to walk through it. Here's the main point, I think. When you look at the whole passage, 5, uh, 10, 5 through 15, when you look at the whole passage, I think verse 13 shows you what this whole thing is about. Look at this. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Eight gave you these promises and showed how good God was. Nine shows you the proof that God, if he says it, he will do it. Regardless of what you do or not, he is faithful. He is Holy, He operates to a different thing than we do. You know what I mean? So it's proof of his faithfulness. But here's the purpose behind it. That salvation has now, in Jesus Christ, salvation is available now to every single person. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. They will get to join in the family. They get to be a part of this family where fear no longer reigns, but love reigns for those who are now sons and daughters, those who called out to God and said, let me in, I want to be a part of your kingdom because everything else has failed me, but you are the one who can be my Lord, who can be my Savior. Nothing else measures up. Nothing else can or will measure up. And so those who call on the name of the Lord, those are the ones who are joining in to the family. So what does it mean? 
What does it mean, it says, you know, to call on the name of the Lord? That's where the, the passage goes. That's what it's going to be talking about. So Paul picks up in verse 5. He references Moses. And if you've been reading, and I know some of you have been reading through the, the letter of Romans with us. But Paul's talking about uh, Genesis. He's talking about the prophets. He's talking about the, David and the Psalms. He's, ta- he's going to every figure showing God's presence. He's at work. And this is what it means to be a part of his family. And so now he gets to Moses. And he references something that comes from Deuteronomy 30. So you can go there if you want. But chapters 28, 29, and 30. Here's what's happening in Deuteronomy. All right? So follow me here. 28. Moses is coming to the end of his ministry. And he looks at his people and he says, If you obey God. All right? If you just, if you love him, you're going to obey him. And if you know, obey his commands, here's the blessings that come. It's like a father that says, Here's the way things are in this house. And if you do these things, this house will be an incredible place for you. That's what he says in 28. In 29, he says, if you do not do these things, if you do not live according to this way, then this house will not go well for you. And so he, 28, he talks about the blessings that come that from a life of loving Jesus or loving God and being obedient to him. But then he talks about the curse that will come for rebelling against him. And then... He says, but even then, I will be working in this to transform you. Even then, I will, you may have given up on God, but I'm not going to give up on you. And even then, I'm going to work in this. And then you get to chapter 30 that says, and leads us to the point of saying, so that salvation might be near to you. Because Moses is saying, you don't have to go. You don't have to go up and search for it and work hard for it. You don't have to go down to the abyss. or You don't have to work because there are people of the law, remember? And if I do right, then I get what is coming to me. Then if I do this, if I follow this, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. This, that's not what we're talking about anymore. Your work doesn't get you anywhere. But it's what he has done. It's what he is doing that matters most because that's where we pick up in verse 8 because Paul's referring back to this passage that all of these people who have a Jewish background, all of them know this. He says, but what does it say? The word is near. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because Paul is saying, it's not like you have to go up to heaven and say, Jesus, look how good I am. Look how hard I'm working. Look at everything that I've done. Please come down and be with us. Because we know that Jesus has already come. John 1 tells us the word did what? It became flesh. It dwelt among us. He came after us. He left the comforts of heaven because he wanted to be among his people. Because he knew this was the way to salvation. This is the way for you to experience life with God. So he has come. So he's saying you don't have to go up. And try to find him. You don't have to go down to the abyss and say, God, wake up. God, wake up and come and do something. Because they see Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He's defeated death. He's conquered sin. He has made a way to eternal life. So you don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go down to the abyss. Here's the reality. He has come near. Salvation has come near to you. It's not about what you do. You can't work hard enough for this. You can't fight your way into this. Jesus fought for you. He came near you. He made salvation available to you in his sacrifice, in his life of perfection and holiness. He made it possible. Paul's saying it's near. 
right? It's in, he's like, it, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. That's how close this is. And he gets more specific. Look what he says in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Think of how simple that is, okay? He, he makes it really simple. He says, man, if you just confess with your mouth, I'm going to talk about what this means, but if you just simply confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then listen, it's a simple response to all that God has done. He says, if you do that, you will be saved. It will cost you everything, okay? It's not easy. It is a simple invitation. Speak, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then it keeps going. For with your heart, one believes and is justified. With your mouth, one confesses and is saved. So we're going to tackle this a little bit slower. So the first thing is, I right, confess. If you're a fill-in-the-blank person, this is one of your fill-in-the-blanks. Confess Jesus as Lord. All right? So this is a confession. Jesus is Lord. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Awesome. Everybody. So this is a confession that was a public Proclamation. This is oftentimes associated with baptism in the first century. So, because here's the context, here's the emphasis you need to understand. In the first century, the gospel was that Caesar has come. The good news is that Caesar has rescued us. Caesar has made our nations one. Caesar has vanquished the enemy. Caesar has come and made a way for salvation. And Paul says, that is not the gospel. Because people would confess, Caesar is Lord. It has a different meaning now than simply speaking. Because when somebody stands there at their baptism and says, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. There's a different cost that comes with that. There's a different reality that you are now fighting against. You see, people would believe that Caesar is Lord. He's provided and he's done all these things. And the reality is that we know, we know that Jesus is Lord. So here's the question that Paul's actually raising, and he tackles it again in chapter 13, but he's talking. The question is, so who are you pledging allegiance to? That's what baptism is about. Who are you pledging your allegiance to? You pledge it to Caesar? You pledge it to the security that comes with the empire? Or do you pledge it to Jesus the one who gives you a new identity in an eternal kingdom. Who are you saying the Lord of your life is? And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is Lord, okay? Regardless of whether you believe it or not, because some of us might be here right now, and we might not actually believe that Jesus is Lord. We might believe something close that he's really great or that he's got some fantastic teaching or we believe that when we come to his church we feel great being here. But many of us might struggle with the reality that Jesus is Lord. But that fact does not change with if you believe it or not. He is Lord. Look at Philippians 2. 
And you, if you want to flip there real fast, you can do that. But Philippians 2, it's saying that, you know, have this mind in Christ who became left heaven, emptied himself. He gave himself. He even became obedient to death on a cross for you. And then look what happens here. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Even Caesar, yes, even Caesar, he's been given a higher name than that. And look what happens. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue, what? Confess. Jesus is Lord. So I want you to understand that he is Lord. And there's a day when every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is, in fact, going to confess. And I would hate for us to not know this. I would hate for us to hear this and ignore it. And then 20 years later, come to a deeper understanding of the reality that Jesus is Lord and has made a way for eternal hope for us. And we miss it and we regret all the years that we lived having a Lord of something else reigning over our lives. Man, let us wake up, right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see, like marriage, again, once Lindsay and I got married, um, you know, when you say Jesus is Lord, it's a decision that then determines all the other decisions, like marriage. Okay, when I say I want to marry Lindsay... Um, I'm deciding that we are now one. And if you're like me, when you first got married, you, you actually decided to get married, but you still kept making decisions as though you were not one. And my wife, in her grace and in her direct positivity, <laughs> I guess, um, she would let me know that, excuse me, we make decisions now. We do this together now. You don't make decisions without us. And that's how this is. When you say, Jesus is Lord, it's the decision that has now made every other decision for you. So you don't have to worry about certain things anymore because you know whatever he has said in his word, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to live. That's what we're going to be about. And so when you say and you proclaim with your mouth and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you're saying that I now belong to a new reality. In the same way that when I got married, I now belong to a new family. Even my old family is now second compared to this new family that I'm a part of. And here's what a commentator said about this. This confession. Excuse me, this confession which follows functions, therefore, as the equivalent of the Shema. Do you know what that is? In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, this is what it says. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What that did for the people of Israel was gave them an identity. It gave them a, we are a people of God. The Lord our God is one. We are his people. That's what the Shema did. And, for, and, and in the same way that the Shema identifies himself as belonging to Israel, so he who says, Kurion Yesun, Jesus is Lord. The same person that speaks that now identifies himself as belonging to Jesus. No other Lord reigns in this person's life. That's what is behind when you confess Jesus is Lord. So let's get practical for a minute. All right? And we only have a minute to get practical. Just saying. Okay, so who or what is your functional Lord? 
Who or what is the functional Lord of your life? Let me give you two questions that are going to help expose this in your life. And this is going to require some reflection here. One, does your peace and joy increase with more of Jesus or more money? I think it's an important question. Does your peace, does your joy increase with more of him, excuse me, more of him or more money? Because Jesus even said, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two lords. You can't say, money is Lord and Jesus is. It doesn't work like that. You have one Lord and everything else submits to him. And I'll give you an example of this because recently we were trying to sell this house. We, had it, we bought it in 07, tried to sell it in 08, and you can figure out what happened. Um, so we've been holding on to this house and we're like, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Get this thing out of our hands. So we're finally at a place where we're trying to sell this thing. And um, my wife and I have really been struggling because we don't, this isn't something we do. We don't buy and sell things. That's for smarter people with money. We're, we're simple people, okay? Um, we're, because we have four kids and we're like, why do they keep coming? You know, that's kind of, think about that. So that's where we're at. We're simple people trying to just figure out how to do life, all right? So we're, we're like, should we accept this? Should we do this? What should, how do we even process this? And so, you know, it wasn't until we hit our knees and just said, God, we need you to show us. We know your Bible, the Bible doesn't say, accept the offer, or don't accept, hey, the Bible doesn't say things like that. But we, we hit our knees and we said, God, we're listening, and we need your wisdom because you're Lord, and we're not. And then the Lord started revealing passages. He reminded us of things like, don't I feed the birds? Don't I clothe the flowers? My wife shared the passage. She was like, the Lord gave us not a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power, one of self-control. The Spirit of God is at work within us. And as we're reading these passages, we realized that we were looking to money to be our Lord. We're saying Jesus is going to save us, but what we're living is if we have more money, we'll feel better. If we make more money, we'll feel better. If this is a better deal, then we'll have more security. And Jesus was saying, who is your functional Lord? Me or money? And I mean, this was just days ago where it's like, Man, we're struggling with this. Who's our functional Lord? And you ask that question, and I think many of us need to ask it about money because we're Americans. Money is always going to fight for the throne of your life. And so you've got to ask, is my peace and my joy dependent on my bank account? And if it is, then you need to do some repentance. That's old school right there. You need to, you need to turn things around and start living a different way. All right, here's another question for you. Number two, what drives the decisions that you make? What drives the decisions that you make? Because if Jesus is Lord is the one decision that determines all the other decisions, then that should answer the question. So you have to ask, what drives the decisions that I make? And I want you to reflect on this. And you don't do it now. I need you to pay attention, but do it later. All right? So, so the question is, like, what drives me? And again, let's just be real honest. Uh, if you're a friend of mine, you already know this. But what drives me is the approval of other people. 
The, the approval and the affirmation that I get from other people is what actually drives my life. So that all throughout the day, I'm struggling with this battle of looking at Jesus on the throne of my life saying, could you please just scoot over a little bit for this person because I could really use their approval in my life right now. And so I'm asking Jesus to now share this throne in my life and he doesn't share the throne. It doesn't work like that. If he's the Lord, everything gets better. But if you are forcing him off the throne and all these other lords in your life are reigning, then it will not work for you. It will not pass. It will not solve or satisfy these things in your life. It's not going to work. But for me, it's always, man, I'm, I'm wanting these other things to drive. So I have to pay attention. What is driving the decisions that I make? Because if Jesus is driving the decisions that I make, if he's the Lord of my life, then integrity and compromise, it's not a question anymore. It's who I am, right? Purity, it's not a question anymore. It's who I am. But if I keep seeking the approval of other people, if I keep letting my ego sit on the throne of my life, if I keep letting pride or any of these things take the throne of my life, all of a sudden I get really confused about how to make decisions anymore really confused about how to move forward. So again, and I just want to be really clear here, okay? I feel like I'm hammering it. Here we go. Jesus is Lord. Do we get this? Jesus, presently, seated at the right hand of God. He's already defeated. He's already gone to the cross. He's already defeated death. He walked out of a grave. He's already done that. He's now seated as the reigning Lord of all creation, Okay, he is Lord. I had a professor, we were having this conversation in class, and one of the girls said, okay, so help me understand this a little bit better. When, when I accept Jesus and make him the Lord of my life, and she's like, whoa, my professor said, time out. We don't make Jesus anything. He is. He is Lord. You are surrendered to that or not. One day it's coming, and you will. But he is presently Lord of your life. And listen, whatever your functional Lord is, whatever you're substituting for him, it will disappoint you. It will fail. That's going to happen. It doesn't matter how, feel, how secure you feel right now. It is coming a day when that throne is going to break. And I'd rather you hear it now than 20 years later finally wake up to this reality. So confess, confess, confess. If you've never spoken, Jesus is Lord. And I'm not just saying flippantly. I'm saying I'm turning from every other functional Lord in my life, surrendering to him. If you've never done that, confess Jesus is Lord. Now, we're going to fly through the rest of this. Are you already? Here we go. Second part of this. Believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead. Biblical belief is more than just knowing something. It's knowing something to the point, knowing that it is true to the point where you're banking your life on it, where you're trusting everything to it, where it affects not only your mind, but it affects your heart, it affects your hands, it affects your will. Everything is surrendered. True biblical belief is more than knowing because even scripture teaches that demons believe in God. They haven't surrendered to him. They don't trust him. So true biblical belief means knowing something to be true and trusting your life to it, trusting your life with it. When we say we believe in Jesus, we are saying we're going to put our hope and trust in him as our Savior, the only one who can save. And when we're saying we trust, through, we, we are saying that we trust that through his death, 
We are not only free from sin, but now given eternal life. Because when you say, we believe that he raised him from the dead, you're also saying, there's got to be something beyond this world. There's got to be an eternal destiny that is now available in and through Christ. That is what we are saying. We believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead. And he is now taking us. When we leave this life, we enter into life with him unhindered for eternity. But we're also saying there are people who don't know him or who have chosen not to follow him. who are going to have an eternity of rebellion against him. Eternal life for those in him. Eternal death for those without him. We've got to take that serious. When we say, I believe that God raised him from the dead, we're saying, thank you, Jesus, for making a way for me to experience life in eternity with you beyond this life. Let's keep going. Verse 11 now. We're back in Romans 10. Verse 11. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen, all these other gods, all these other lords you have in your life, they will put you to shame. When you fall on your face, they will laugh at you. But God, when you believe in him, when you trust in him, you will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, man, they're going to be saved. They're rescued from their sin. Life in Christ. I want to give you two words that are going to help us understand a little bit more how this plays out. Two words, ready? Turn and trust. Okay, you can write those down real quick. Turn and trust. Because sometimes in, in church we talk about like repent, you know, and all of a sudden you have flashbacks of a, some television preacher or some man childhood memory that makes you get all twitchy right now. So sorry I even said it. But here's what this, here's simply, here's what that means. You know, repent, turn. You've been, you've been following all these other lords. What we're saying is just turn. You, you turn to Jesus as Lord, and you trust. You trust that when he says, don't go down that path, he's not trying to dupe you, but he's trying to rescue you from pain. He's trying to help you experience life in the kingdom here and now. So you turn from following all these other things, and you trust that he is good, that he is the Lord of creation, that he has conquered death, that he has paid for your sin, that he has now given you his righteousness, that he has now invited you into his family, that he has now called you to something greater than what our lives meant before he rescued us. So we turn. I love this one artist, Derek Webb, he said, we turn from lovers less wild and we turn to him, the one who can actually satisfy an infinitely deep emptiness within us that can only be satisfied by an eternal God. All right? So we turn and we trust that Jesus is who he said he is. He will do what he said he is. So he will do. Now listen to me. I'm going to wrap it up right here. If this is true, we've said a lot so I'm going to just lump it all together. If this is true, that Jesus is who he said he is, he's defeated sin in the grave, making a way for us to heaven, then shouldn't we, listen to me, then shouldn't we be going to our homes? Shouldn't we be the ones going to our work? Shouldn't we be the ones going to our universities, to our workplaces, to all these places? Shouldn't we be going to love like Jesus and help people know that there's another way? Shouldn't we be sending people to every corner of our world, making sure that they know the name of Jesus? Shouldn't we be praying that God would unleash his church? 
that we would be people set on fire for his mission and his kingdom? Shouldn't we be sending and going and praying if this is true, if he is Lord and in him is life and life eternal? If that is true, then shouldn't we be going? Because that's what Paul says. In 14, he says, how will they call on him? How are they going to call on him unless someone, he, unless whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they going to preach unless someone sends them? Listen, how it is written, how beautiful are the feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Who's the preacher in this passage? Who's the one who is sent in this passage. Who's the one who needs to have beautiful feet from this passage? You know it. It's not me. It's you. It's the church. Going to every dark corner of our town and our homes, going to every dark corner of our world and saying that Jesus is Lord, you've been oppressed by the lords of our world and it's not good enough. And Jesus is, in fact, Lord. Who's the one who goes and preaches? Man, it's you. It's the church. Man, if you keep quiet, if you don't tell someone about the love of Jesus, who will? Man, who's, who's going to speak up? You don't expect to bring them here and the preacher's going to do all the work. Man, we're messed up people up here. You don't, you don't want that. You want Jesus working in you, through you. Don't you think he knows what he's doing when he put you in your workplace? Not me. Don't you think he knew what he was doing when he put you in your family? Not me. Not some pastor around here. Man, if we don't speak, you know, and I, I just think about we're, we're a people that are really sensitive to offense. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say something because I might offend someone else. What is more offensive? To know that Jesus is Lord and entire nations haven't even heard his name? What is more offensive? To know you got family members that are living without Christ, you don't want to offend them, and yet you know what life in Christ feels like, that his righteousness, what's more offensive? Sit on the other side of that. Man, the church, here's where the church is. It's made up of those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved and are then called in the name of the Lord to be sent. It's who we are. It's not something we do. It's not some ministry plan that we have. It is who we are. We go. We send people. We pray like crazy that God would send his church to light up our world. That's what we do. All right? Let me pray for us. Here we go. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for Jesus that, man, in him is life. Man, 
man, I just hope even for those of us who've been following you for decades, I pray that we would just have this new picture, like new glasses that we would see you again for the first time and realize that in you is life, in you is light. There's no darkness in you. In fact, your presence chases away darkness. It, it causes the darkness to tremble. And because your spirit is at work within us, we have nothing to be afraid of. We have no thing to fear. And Jesus, for people, and you know everyone here, you know everybody listening, if they don't know you, they haven't called on your name, then I pray that you would give them what they need. Give them the courage. If it's courage, give it understanding. If it's understanding, whatever it is, Jesus, invite them into your family. Work to make it known. Make, <laughs> help them see that you are Lord. And give them the courage to respond. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.